Amen. Hey, well, let's talk about our 12 Tribes series tonight. We're going to talk about Judah, a little historical and prophetic study on Judah. We've talked about Reuben. We've talked about Simeon and Levi uh, and the sons of Leah. And we're going to talk about the fourth son uh, of Jacob tonight. So uh, you've got a handout, and if you have any questions, just feel free to shoot one, shoot it up there and let me know. Uh, But uh, Judah, his name means praise. That's what his name means. It means praise, a symbol on the priest, uh, on his flag would have been a lion. And his stone on the priestly breastplate would have been a uh, a ruby or red, a carnelian. And uh, Reuben is the fourth son to uh, Leah. So you see, uh, here's the wives of of Jacob, you got Leah, then Bilhah, which was her servant, uh, or Rachel's servant, and then Zilpha, Leah's servant, then Leah, and then Rachel. That's kind of how the order of birth would happen. So Leah has the first four sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, and then comes Judah. And so he's the fourth son of Jacob and Leah. In Genesis 29, 35, it says, And she conceived again, bore a son, and said, Now I will praise the Lord. And that's what she called him. She called him praise. Uh, and then she stopped bearing children. And so uh, we're going to talk about his younger years first, and then I'll kind of go into who he was as a person. Then we'll go to what became of his tribe and the legacy and the prophecy uh, that would come out of Jacob uh, and what he did, you know, his father, what he would speak over him at his deathbed. But um, in Genesis 37, that's where we are here at first. So uh, Jacob has some sons. And his favorite son is Joseph. And we're not going to get into the story of Joseph because we're going to talk about Joseph later. But if you kind of remember the story or you've seen the, uh, uh, you know, the, the Disney or cartoon movie, you know, Joseph, Prince of whatever, uh, he, he's a good kid. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, prophetic. Uh, he's kind of a tattletale. And his brothers are kind of bad and crazy and mean. And so you know the story that they, com- uh, they plot to kill their own little baby brother. And it says that uh, he would go out and, and tell on his brothers, and they would say, hey, well, let's, let's kill this kid. And it says in Genesis 37, verse 26 through 28, we're looking, actually looking at verse 21. It says, but Reuben heard of it, and he delivered Joseph out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and don't lay a hand on him so that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So Reuben, the first son, he's, you know, you you think your first child is probably the leader of the pack. But Reuben, remember, he was the inconsistent, fickle one. And so he really didn't have that leadership ability, so they really didn't listen to Reuben, even though he was the oldest. And these guys were not young at this time, okay? These are not teenagers. These are men, with Joseph being a boy, all right? And so Reuben says, well, let's just, let's not do that to dad. Let's throw him in the pit. And Reuben secretly was planning, I'll come get him out later and blah, 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 blah. He's just a kid, even though I don't like him. Well, they didn't really care for that idea. And so Judah steps up to his brothers and says, well, what profit is there if we kill our brother, verse 26, uh, and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let's not our hands be upon him. He's our brother in our flesh and his brother's listened. You ever had, um, you ever told some people like what to do uh, and they didn't listen to your advice and then someone else comes along and says the exact same thing and they listen to them, you know, and you're like, I just literally told you that. How did you not 
What do you mean? They had to come along and say the same thing. That's kind of this relationship. Here's the oldest firstborn son saying, let's not kill him, let's put him in a pit and just punish him for a little while. And he plans to come get him out. But then Judah says, no, because he sees that that's not going his way. They're, they're thinking they're still going to kill him. Judah steps on the scene and says, all right, let's sell him. It'd be better to sell him. I'm going to save him by selling him uh, than y'all kill him. But, okay, but put that in context. You, you still just sold your little brother, okay? It's not like you're a good guy. You're just not as bad, maybe perhaps, as the others. Uh, you didn't want him to die, but you still sold him off into slavery. So again, uh, maybe it's the lesser of evils or something. So the, the dude's not righteous here at all. But, and he didn't know about Reuben's plan to rescue him, so he thought, well, it would be better to sell him than kill him. But the interesting thing I want you to note there is how the brothers listened to Judah and not the firstborn. And uh, if you've come around some people, you kind of know, man, there are some people that are kind of natural-born leaders. You know, you throw a ball into a bunch of kids, and you kind of can turn out real quick who's going to be the team captain. Somebody's got that take-charge initiative. There are those in the group uh, that you say, hey, here's a problem, and you look at work, and someone's going to kind of be the point person. They have that in uh, ingenuity or initiative about them. And so that's kind of Judah. Judah is a natural-born leader, all right? Um, So we don't hear much about him after that, but then look in Genesis 38. So Jacob's, they're they're just settled in the promised land now. Uh, Jacob has come back. He's seen uh, God move. He's made amends with Esau. He's come back to the promised land. He's trying to get his life right, but his family's crazy. His wives are crazy. The whole family's nuts, right? They're old now. I mean, he's really old. Uh, in our terms, all right? So he's really old. And his sons, his older sons, are now pretty old too. They have their own wives and families, even grandchildren. Um, so it's not like these are a bunch of young people. These are, it's, but it's a clan. They all stay together. And so Judah, like Esau, uh, his uncle, casts off restraint. He marries like he's not supposed to. He does marry into a Canaanite family. And from this, man, a lot of wickedness happens in his life. So uh, Jacob and the family, they've moved to Shechem, and Judah, he marries this Canaanite uh, woman. He has a son named Ur, and Onan, and Shelah. Now, Ur, one of his sons, marries another Canaanite girl called Tamar. And so, now, think about this. Judah, he's not as bad as his brothers. He's a natural-born leader. Okay. He didn't really want to kill his brother, but he didn't save him either. He could have just said, no, guys, we're going to send him back to dad. He didn't do that. But, and then he marries a Canaanite woman who has a son, and his son marries a Canaanite girl named Tamar. All right, so the family's all, again, not doing really what they ought to be doing. But uh, Ur uh, is slain for his wickedness. He's such a wicked guy, Judah's son, God kills him. And then his second son, Onan, by the law of that day, your uh, brother, if you were killed and I had a widowed wife, and my brother hasn't married or whatever, he should marry uh, my wife so that uh, the line of my, my name would go on, so that Ur would have a descendants, and then he would have descendants. Uh, but Onan was required to do that for his brother, but he refused, so God didn't like that. He didn't have compassion, so God killed him too. So Judah has one more son named Shelah, and Judah promises Tamar, remember that first wife, his daughter-in-law, he promises his widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar, to his third son. But his third son's really, really young. And he says, well, when he comes of age, 
This is, again, kind of weird. Hey, she's like, I don't know, maybe she's a 40-year-old woman. I got a 16-year-old son. When he comes of age, okay, I'll give him to you. But he was kind of nervous. He's like, well, dude, all of my other sons have died because they refuse this thing. So he puts it off. And he never marries, let's tame our marriage. So she stays in this widowed-like state, unable to marry, unable to have a, a fruitful life. It's a very depressing life. It's not prosperous. Uh, and in that day, that's how you had a status. That's how you lived and were provided for. You would marry and have children. And that was kind of the, the thing that women did, right? And so she's upset. She doesn't want to live that way anymore. So she kind of plots. Now, remember, she's a Canaanite. And in the Canaanite culture, it wasn't bad to be a temple prostitute, okay, from their immoral lifestyle. So she makes a plan. While Judah's on his way on a trip, she makes a plan. She says, well, I'm going to dress up as a temple prostitute, and I'll sit on the road with Judah, and I'm going to trick him. And so she does. She covers her face, her veil. She doesn't look like herself. She acts like a temple prostitute, which in her culture may not be the baddest thing. And she seduces Judah. And uh, they have relations, and then he doesn't have money to pay her. Again, this is, this is not PG, you know, in, in the Old Testament here. He doesn't have money to pay her, so what he does is he leaves her his signet ring, which is representative of his family clan, the tribe of Judah. He leaves her his staff, again, the authority of his clan, and then he leaves her some bracelets or some jewelry. And he says, well, I'll come back. You hold this as a deposit. I'm going to come back. Apparently, this isn't normally in his character uh, that we can see. So he goes, goes, get the money to come back. She's gone. But he's so embarrassed that he gave up something so valuable as his ring and his staff and his bracelets that he doesn't even tell anybody because he's too embarrassed because it's really too priceless. In a sense, it's a sign of the covenant, the sign of what God, God has done for their family, the power and the things he would pass on to his sons. I mean, he's, this is like your inheritance, right? This is like the symbol of your family. So he loses it. And don't you know, sometimes when you have sin, you know, the Bible, we said sin, uh, beware your sin will uh, find you out, right? And sin's crouching at the door, seeking to master you. So he's kind of caught in one of those situations. He's been caught in his secret sin. And then he finds out later that his daughter-in-law, he don't know who it was, but he finds out later his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. Well, man, if you got pregnant out of wedlock in those days, you were stoned. You were killed, especially when you're, you're, not, you're, not even a, you're not even a Jew. You're a Canaanite. And so he says, all right, it's time to kill her. She's been unfaithful to her widow vow. She hasn't waited for my son. And so she's there on the chopping block, so to speak. And she says, well, the man who impregnated me, these are his things. And then she pulls out the staff, the ring, and all this stuff. And Judah's, you know, obviously his face goes pale. And he's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. And he says, she's a better woman than I. And he repents because he knew he had secret sin. He knew what he did. And he was ashamed. Not only that, is he had lied to Tamar and not been good to her. So he'd been unfaithful to her. He'd lied about his secret sin. He'd hid it. And so the kind of the context there is, all right, look at this guy. One, he's messed up. The whole family's messed up. And he hasn't been faithful. He hasn't been 100% of a man. He, but he's got something inside of him that's natural-born leadership. And I guess the good thing you could say about that passage is at least he does own it. Okay? He could have denied it. He could have hid it or whatever. But he did own up to his sin. He was an imperfect man. He married imperfect people. He didn't do it right way. 
Uh, he had relations with what he thought was a Canaanite prostitute, but how do you think that relates to the sin of his brothers? Now, we're about to talk about his blessing. Think about Reuben. What did Reuben do? Reuben was a fickle man, uh, and he was inconsistent, and he slept with his father's uh, concubine, his father's, you know, uh, Bilha, or his, uh, Rachel's maid. And so... Uh, Jacob didn't bless him. And then you've got Levi and Simeon, who are righteous and indignation. I mean, they are fierce and angry, and they slaughtered a whole town when their sister got raped uh, and made a spectacle of it, and not just slaughtered the whole town, took the women and children as slaves, plundered it all, I mean, killed people when they were defenseless. And uh, Jacob said, you have made me of a bad reputation. And so he cursed them too. But then now comes Judah. Aren't you glad this isn't your family at Christmas? You know what I mean? Think about it. It would be a crazy holiday, okay? So, this is Judah. He hasn't, you know, done quite like that, but man, he did have a part in selling off his brother, which his dad don't know about. He's married into a pagan religion. He had relations with what he thought was a pagan prostitute, what ended up being his daughter-in-law, which he should have given away. So now he's got a son by his daughter-in-law. Uh, in fact, they... they uh, have multiple sons, all right? And actually, it has, Tamar ends up having twins. And those twins, actually, we'll, we'll talk about becoming the line of the Messiah. So put that in your Jesus holy bubble, right? But we know marrying into the world ruins us. Paul says, what does light and dark have to do with each other? We're, we're not to be of the world. But look what Judah did. Okay, now look at, uh, going down to Genesis 43, verse 8. So Judah has this opportunity to redeem himself. And finally, at the end of all of this, they find that there's a famine in the land. And this big, big family clan, again, they're older now. They've got kids and grandkids. Jacob's really old, really, really old. And uh, famine in the land. Joseph is no more. Benjamin is now on the scene. Rachel's died. And uh, we're in the desert uh, of Israel. And there's a famine. And we have to go now to Egypt, way down south, to try to get some food. When we go, Jacob sends his sons, except for Benjamin, because he's the last son of Rachel, which is his favorite wife. Joseph, the other son of Rachel, is gone, missing, killed by a wild beast, he, he assumes. Now he's just got little baby Benjamin to remind him of his favorite wife. Sends the other sons to get food. Well, Joseph, by the grace and power of God, has become the, I guess you'd say, the viceroy, the second in command of Pharaoh, and has led the nation into prosperity by the grace and power of God. And so Joseph, seeing his brothers, makes a trick. He keeps Simeon uh, and says, I want you to go get all of your brothers, even your youngest, and bring all of them back, and then I will help you, and you can get your brother out of jail because you guys maybe are spies. I want to make sure you're not spies. So they lose Simeon. They go back down to, uh, go up back to Israel, tell their father, tell their father, oh my gosh, Dad, we tried to go get food for the family and the whole clan, but... They took Simeon in jail, and now they're saying we got to bring Benjamin so that we can prove we're not spies. And Reuben says, well, Dad, if you just let me... Remember, he's the fickle one that Jacob knows. Hey, you slept with my concubine. I don't trust you. And Reuben says, well, I'll offer my own sons instead. You know, I'll, 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 I'll guarantee uh, Benjamin will come back with you. And Jacob says, no, because Jacob does, he knows his son's really no good. And I'm not doing that. But then Reuben steps up. Finally, it had gone too long. I mean, sorry, Joseph, uh, Judah steps up. It had gone too long. And 
Judah says to his father, Send the lad with me, and we'll arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Myself, I'll be a guarantee for him, and from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And with that, Israel, or Jacob, says yes. See, what was it about Judah that would, allow, would give Jacob a, okay, I'm going to trust my baby boy uh, with Judah. There was some kind of natural-born leadership inside of Judah that he kind of took the lead with his brothers. And so the long story short, uh, they would, Joseph would trick him. He would put a cup on Benjamin and say, Benjamin, the baby boy, had stolen something when they got back. And, and then in that moment, Judah goes white again, and he's thinking, oh my gosh, I've lost daddy's baby boy, his favorite now son. And then Judah pleads with Joseph, you know, who he thinks is just this Egyptian ruler. And Judah offers himself in the stead of Benjamin. And in this way, some people think that Judah becomes a symbol of Jesus Christ, where he then lays his life down for another innocent. And you begin to see the character that inside of Judah, despite all of his faults and flaws and his misguidedness, there's something virtuous of a leader inside of him. And he didn't really stick up for Joseph when he should have. But now that he's about to lose Benjamin, he sees what it had done to his dad. Maybe even in his old age, he's learned from his mistakes. And maybe even being humbled by Tamar, maybe that, that did something in him. So he stands up for Benjamin And then we see the family reunited. Uh, But think about that. He makes intercession. He lays down his life. And so now look in Genesis 49, verse 8. Now comes the very end of their life. They've moved to Israel. I mean, they've moved to Egypt. Jacob is now on his deathbed, and he's going to die. And this is all we really know about Judah so far as a person. He comes to Reuben. He curses Reuben in a way before, because Reuben slept with his, his, uh, his uh, concubine. He curses Simeon and Levi. He said, you'll be divided and scattered. You'll never own any property. You're going to be in the middle of your brothers because you went out and you took vengeance way beyond vengeance. But then he comes to Judah. And look what he says to Judah. 49, verse 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Now, what does Judah's name mean? Praise. So what is he kind of saying? Judah, your brothers shall Judah you. Okay? That's what he's saying. It's a play on words. Judah, your brothers shall Judah you. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down like a lion, as as a lion. Who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet, until Shiloh comes. That word Shiloh right there is a symbol or the name for Messiah. All right, Shiloh is a name for the Messiah. It also can mean, uh, if you change one letter on it, it can mean the one whose it is. So it says, as the scepter shall not depart from the one whose right it is, or the one whose rightful place it is. So he's basically saying either it's, the scepter shall not depart from the Messiah, or the scepter, the, the staff, shall not part from the one who rightfully deserves it. Okay? 
And to him shall be all the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal, that's a donkey, to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garment in wine, drinks his robes in the blood of grapes. Okay, His ours. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Okay, we're going to really look at this for a second because that's kind of weird. But you've got to think about it. He just cursed his first top three sons. So remember, there was this thing called a birthright. And a birthright was, uh, number one, it was a double portion of property to the oldest son. So if, if Joe here uh, was his daddy's oldest, uh, his little brothers would get five acres of land, but Joe would get ten. It's double what all the other sons would get. You would get double the property, so double the inheritance, okay? Not only that, but as an oldest son, you would become the next patriarch of the clan, which means you would lead the clan in authority, and you would lead the clan in the religious duties as the priest, the spiritual head of the family. So you had uh, the double property, you had the power and authority as the patriarch, and you had the third thing, you had the religious Uh, leadership ability. Well, when he prophesies over Reuben and Simeon and Levi, he doesn't mention anything about good things. So in a sense, he passes them over. They lose their birthright. And so Reuben, the oldest, is probably thinking, what happened to my birthright? And then Simeon's thinking, well, he didn't get it. Maybe I'm going to get it. And Simeon gets passed over, and Levi gets passed over. Now we're the fourth son, Judah. He blesses Judah. And Judah... He says, what? What are, the, what are of those three, what could you think Judah's going to get? It's leadership ability and power. All right, see that? Leadership ability and power. He's going to have the lion's power, and he's going to have the scepter, this rulership. And we'll talk about later the double portion he'll give to Joseph for the inheritance. And prophetically, we talked about last week, Levi, who become, he eventually redeems himself when he stands with Moses, becomes the priest of the family. But here we have, he says, praise is going to be a part of you. That's your name. Your brothers shall praise you. Their brothers shall judo you. He says, it's going to be like a lion. You, what is a lion? It's victorious. It's powerful. Uh, he's pra- prophesying dominance over your enemies. That's going to remember that right there because we're going to talk about the tribe in a second. And he says, this ruler, this new ruler, this king... And what is he going to do? This Messiah, this one who has this scepter. You know, kings had these scepters, these staff. Uh, sometimes you see it in Egyptian hieroglyphics. You see them holding like a little short stick. That's the scepter, okay? A little short stick to what symbolizes authority and power, okay? He says this Messiah will be like this king with power. And what's he going to do? Now look at that part about the donkey and the vine and the milk and the grapes and the blood, okay? What's he saying there? He's saying basically this Shiloh, this Messiah, when it's time for him to rule, he will rule the entire world as this lion of a figure, and he will usher in a reign of prosperity like never before seen. It'll be a reign of peace and prosperity. He says, it'll be so wonderful, people will be just full of milk. Like, we don't have, you know, you know, Crest 3D whitening strips. You know, they didn't have that then. But he's saying, like, milk. Man, because milk was a commodity. It was something, no, you know, it's important, rare. You know, you got water, milk, and wine, okay? And most of your water is dirty water, all right? So, milk. He says, your teeth will be so white with milk. Your mouth will be so full of milk all the time, it'll be like your teeth are white. Like, he's basically saying, you're going to be overflowing with milk. And he says, you're going to be overflowing with grapes, huge grapes, just bountiful produce, 
and prosperity. And he says, it's going to be so wonderful. You'll tie your donkey up. There'll be so many grapes. You won't even care about tying your donkey up to your best choice vine. You'll even let the little, the little donkey and the billy goat and all that come up there and just eat that vine away because you'll have so much blessing when this king comes to power. Doesn't that sound good? Like, you know, it's like, I don't even care. Just let him eat the garden because my garden is so huge. What's one donkey going to really do with my big old garden? I mean, that's what he's saying. He's like, it's not literal. It's the metaphorical, spiritual part of it. It's saying there's coming a day when the rightful king comes. He will usher in a reign for his people, which will be so good. You'll just, it'll just be unbelievable. Like, unbelievable. Because he's thinking, nobody ties their little bitty baby donkey who's just going to eat everything up to their best wine branch. They would just be ignorant. Be saying, you won't even care. It'll be so wonderful. And so this paradise, uh, one author says it this way, he says, the paradise of this king will be intoxicatingly abundant. I like that. That when Jesus comes, you know who the Messiah is because we're Christians. When Jesus comes, the creation he's going to bring is going to be so intoxicatingly abundant. That's not, I'm talking about drunkenness. I'm saying it's just going to be overwhelmingly good that we've never seen a day such like that. And so here's the question. Why would the Messiah come through a man who did not stick up for his brother and let him go to slavery, who uh, married a Canaanite woman, had a Canaanite son, slept with a Canaanite who he thought prostitute, impregnated his daughter-in-law, and gave away his signet ring? Why would God use people like this? Think about it. Of all the people in the world, couldn't you find somebody perfect God? And show people what it means to be a good person, holy and blameless and above reproach. And God just, you know, doesn't God use perfect people? Was he worthy? Was he any better than his brothers? Was he any better than Simeon and Levi and Reuben? And the only thing I can come back to in this is that Reuben sinned against his father, as did Simeon and Levi. While Judah sinned, he never sinned against his father. And when he sinned, he owned it. And there's a little bit of a hint in there about a man we call David who is a man after God's own heart. And he was a good sinner and he was a good saint. But when he sinned, what did he do? He owned it. He repented and he changed by it and he was remorseful for it. And I love what Matthew Henry says. It says, The worthiness of Christ is not of himself, because it comes from God, and it's not from his ancestors, but God chose people by grace. And God illustrates through the entire Old Testament, God saves sinners. He's come to the world to save sinners and not one person. In fact, if you go through the Messianic line, you're going to see murderers and adulterers and thieves and prostitutes, even pagans and women. And all of these messed up people because God saves us by grace through faith. When we repent and come to Him and we are sorry for our ways, He saves us anyway. That's a good God, right? I mean, that shows you, hey, then the line of Jesus is a guy like this. And then not to mention, this is the guy who's the first real clear prophecy of Him. So let's talk about the tribe real quick. 
the tribe of Judah. So that's kind of all we hear about Judah. And he turns into a tribe. He begins to have kids and multiply, and, and even it's messed up kids, by the way. But Judah in the tribe is still a leader of men. That's that blank right there. He's a leader of men. Uh, Judah begins to lead other tribes on the march to the promised land. I want to show you on the map uh, as well. Judah begins to lead people on the way to the promised land. And as I told you, in the tabernacle, when Moses is in the uh, wilderness, and you know they have the, the tabernacle, it's a square, and there's the holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. Again, if you've seen Lears of the Lost Ark or something like that, you know, that thing, the box with the angels on it, right? Around it, are, every time they'd camp and every time they would walk, on every side are three tribes. Three on the left, three on the right, three on the top, three on the bottom. And in the inner circle are the Levites. Remember, the Levites would keep you from touching uh, the veil or the tent uh, of meeting because you would die. And they were there to prepare for it and care for it. And there would be three families on every side. But God is always interested in the east side. You ever heard of the prophecies about the eastern gate? And God's coming from the east and the Messiah's coming from the east, all right? All right, well, the east side over here is the only entrance to the tabernacle. And in front of it, Moses and Aaron and his sons, the high priest, would have camped. And just outside of them, guess what big tribe it's going to be? It's going to be Judah. And if they would ever travel, they led from the east. Judah becomes, as a leader of his brothers, and the one who has the patriarchal family blessing, he begins to lead them through the wilderness. So the tribe of Judah would march first, uh, and they became the, one of the largest tribes. They had 74,600 at the Sinai um, moment with Moses, and later they'd go up to 76,500 uh, with Joshua. And as they're about to go into the promised land, excuse me, as they're about to go into the promised land, Moses blesses them too. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 7, if you want, you can read that. Deuteronomy 33, verse 7. And here's what he says regarding Judah. He says, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah. Now, what's Judah's name? Praise. Hear, O Lord, the voice of praise, and bring him to his people. With his hands he contended for them, and may you be a help against his adversaries. Let me look at that in the New Living, because here's, here's, here's a blessing I want for my life. Here's what he says, basically. Lord, hear him. Hear him. Bring him together in unity. Give him strength, Lord, in helping against his enemies. Now, if you're going to pray for me, that would be a great prayer. <laughs> you could pray for me. God, hear this guy's prayer. God, bless his family. Keep him united. Bless his ministry. Keep him united. Lord, help him against his enemies and give him victory. Because why? He's leading the charge, not only through the wilderness, but he's leading the charge to take enemy territory in the promised land. He's about to lead his family into the promises of God. And that's a ministry. You know what? When we step up into ministry and we say, God, I want to lead my family, or I want to lead my church, or I want to lead your people, uh, or whatever, my children, my spouse, he's saying, God, give him, uh, hear his prayers, bring him together, give him strength, and helping against their enemies. Now, some, remember, not all of Moses' blessings were great, and some one tribe he didn't even bless. But here he blesses Judah because of his position. And Judah goes into the land, and as they begin to fight the Canaanites and come into the, the promised land with Joshua, um, of all the tribes, of all the tribes, remember they would get their land, but they really wouldn't own all of it. They had to keep casting out enemies. 
Judah, with the help of his little brother Benjamin, would become the first tribe to fully settle their land. It would be a huge plot of land, and I think we got a map of that. But it would be a huge plot of land. Uh, it would be 45 miles by 50 miles, and then have an additional 50 miles in the desert. And its place, it was hilly and, and all that kind of stuff, but it was also pastures good for grapes and olives. Uh, but there's some important cities that Judah gets. And if you look on the map, it's this big, large red part to the bottom. Look how big it is compared to the rest of the tribes. Look at that. You see how much that is? It is all of that. They get Bethlehem. You ever heard of Bethlehem before? They get Jerusalem. You ever heard of Jerusalem before? They get a place called Hebron. It's going to be David's first, first capital. Uh, and then uh, they even get the Gaza Strip, which is where the Philistines would have lived. Okay? They get the Judean wilderness, is where Jesus is going to be tempted. Uh, they get the, the Negev Desert, which is where David will run from uh, Saul. And so a lot of important stuff happens inside the tribe of Judah. And uh, we know that even they're so large that Moses would send the tribe of Simeon inside of it. Uh, and even Benjamin would be occupied to the north. So look, look at this tribe, though. And here's what happens. Look at their legacy. After they settle in the land, Saul comes to power. King Saul. Remember, Samuel didn't want him, but he went with it. But then this little punk dude, little whippersnapper guy named David, is kind of under the ranks. And when the time comes, and guess where David's from? Who do you think his tribe is? The tribe of Judah. And what is David really good at? Playing the harp, singing. He's really musical. What's the tribe of Judah known for? Praise, right? And also, what's the tribe of Judah known for? Also, what is David known for? Who did David kill? Goliath. He's a warrior. He's a praising warrior. That's perfect. He is a perfect demonstration of the prophetic name and prophecy of Judah. David, in many ways, will fulfill Judah's prophecy as what we call a type, a foreshadow, a type of Jesus Christ. He will be an illustration in human ways of what God was speaking about a coming king. David was not the king, but he was a sign, a symbol of what God was intending to do. And so God finds a man, David, after his own heart, a man of praise, a man of valiant warrior, a man who is quick to repent. And when this young guy shows up on the scene, and he's of the tribe of Judah, guess what tribe stands with him first? Judah. When they hear that this guy is becoming king and Saul is dead, Judah becomes the first tribe to say, yeah, that's my boy. He's a praising, warrior kind of guy. And so they stand with him, go to Hebron, and when the time is right, they would take the capital of Jerusalem with David. David would become one of the most greatest conquering kings uh, Israel had ever seen. Uh, and Judah would stick with him. And uh, he would lead them into a whole new realm of prosperity. And again, that speaks prophetically about this coming king. We're going to talk about Jesus in a second. But here's what happens. Not only do... Uh, there's a good time for Judah. They get famous people come up from them. You've got guys like Caleb. You remember the story of Boaz and Ruth. Boaz is from Judah. You've got David. You've got the king Zerubbabel. You've got the prophet Amos and Micah and Isaiah and Zephaniah. You've got some good people in your line. seems like somehow or another it changed. Uh, something in their spiritual DNA changed after... Judah and that birthright and that prophecy. But at the same time, like all of Israel, everything goes. As Solomon's son would come on the scene, he would kind of divide the kingdom. Ten tribes would go to the north with a, a man uh, not of the Davidic line. 
uh, they would go with a man named Jeroboam, who was from the tribe of Ephraim. And he would split the nation. Ten tribes would focus more in the north, above Judah, above Jerusalem. Ten tribes, which are mostly already up there. Those ten tribes would form a, a united monarchy under Jeroboam. And it would be called Ephraim or Samaria or, uh, if you see in your Bible, it will be called Israel. And so the northern ten tribes become Israel. The southern tribes, which are Judah uh, and Benjamin. You see Benjamin is the other color right there, just north of the Dead Sea. Benjamin and Judah would stay loyal to the house of David, even though David's house had some problems after Solomon. But you would have this split, ten in the north, two in the south. But as things started getting really, really bad in the north, people from every tribe who were true followers of God began to migrate down to the kingdom of Judah. All right? So you've got Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and Judah becomes this representation of what is left good in the kingdom of God. The ten tribes began to fall away into pagan idolatry. Almost every single one of their kings, actually all of the kings become bad. They fall into pagan ideal. God rejects the northern kingdom. He sends the big empire called Assyria, and they go off into exile. And all those ten tribes, they call them the lost ten tribes, they're gone. Now that's kind of a misnomer because really some people from every tribe, especially the Levites, migrated down into the kingdom of Judah because most of Judah's kings were good, but not all of them. Well, as it all goes, and God had ordained it, Judah's tribes and what was in the kingdom of Judah began to fall away from God too. And God would raise up uh, the nation and the empire of Babylon. And you've heard about Babylon before. And about 587, 86 years before Jesus Christ, the southern kingdom of Judah would fall away into exile and they would go into exile in Babylon until an empire named Persia would come on the scene and a king Sirius would release a remnant to go back and rebuild a place now called what? Judea. How many people read that? When you read the New Testament, you read of a land called Judea and Samaria. Remember that? In the Acts it says, and you'll go preach the gospel here and there in Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Well, what happens now is that the remnant of Israel are now all coming back to the kingdom of Judah. Now, what did Jacob prophesy? He basically said, you'll be the ruler of all your brothers. They'll all praise you. In a sense, he's saying, your tribe is going to rule. Literally, in this moment, as they come back from exile, no tribe are differentiated. No one's coming back and saying, I'm an Ephraimite, I'm a Simeonite, blah, blah, blah. Instead, you know what they all come back getting known as? I am a Jew. From the word Judah, or from the place called Judea. How many people knew that's where the Jew term came from, right? And so now all of Israel, who are faithful to the Messiah in the future, they're not there yet, but who are faithful to God's covenant, are now all of Judah, or Judea, or Jews. And so literally Jacob's prophecy comes to pass but it's not fulfilled 100% just yet, right? Okay, so <clears throat> we see in Judah, he shows us there's redemption from sin, but we know what? In Micah, look in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Now we're at the end. Here, here we are. We've gone into exile. 
Now a remnant of Jews have come back from exile. We don't talk about our tribes so much anymore. All that really doesn't matter. Most of the tribes are lost, but those who are faithful and serving God are now all of Judah, are Jews. And there's a holy remnant seeking the Lord. And there's this stir. There's this really big stir. It's been 400 years since we've had a prophet, since we've had anybody speak uh, or hear from the Lord. Ezra and Nehemiah have gone. It's been 400 years, and, and Rome has conquered the world now. But we can look back to a prophecy of one of the last men of Judah, one of the last Judean prophets. And what does he say? But as for you, Bethlehem Epathra, which Bethlehem is in which clan? Judah. He says, you're too little to be among the clans of Judah. But he is. He says, but from you one will go forth from me to be ruler. Where did we get that from? The original prophecy from Jacob in Genesis 49. He said there's going to be a ruler from Judah. Micah, at the very end of any prophetic oracle from the Old Testament, says, it's not over yet, guys. There's still that ruler coming. He's coming from Judah still. He'll be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And guess what happens? 400 years later, a man born of the house of David... Of the line of Judah is born of a virgin, steps on the scene, angels declare his holiness, magi from the east come declare his kingship, angels are singing, shepherds are amazed, it is the new king, and the king has come. It's like, hello world, here I am. And nobody knew it, but he would come, step on the earth, and what would he show us? He would show us that he's a king, a godly man, a holy man, a righteous man, 100% God, 100% man, but he has come to seek and save the lost, to save sinners. His line and is broken, is messed up. All those people that he's humbled himself to follow with and promise and bless, he's finally come to provide their salvation. He's born in Bethlehem, born in Judah. He comes as the lion to break the yoke of sin, but he comes in grace as well to accept and save anybody who would ask for repentance and forgiveness through his blood. And then he leaves. What in the world, dude? What happened to the whole prosperity part and the, uh, you know, come on, beat the devil up part and the make man humble and bow before you? Because I just got the first half of the prophecy. You're here. You're king. You're the eternal one. We got the Holy Spirit thing. You raised from the dead. Okay, we see that. But what about the rest of the donkey and the vine and the colt and, and you know, come on, where's the winning part? Well... John, the apostle, is weeping. He's gone. And Revelation 5, 4, he says, And I began to weep greatly, because I didn't see anyone who was worthy to open the book or to look in it, in the book of the last days, to open the seals. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, who is it? It's the lion that's from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And if you flip back to chapter 1, verse 5, what does it say? It says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sin with his own blood, he has made us with him to be kings and priests, To his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion 
that rulership, the scepter, forever and ever. Amen. He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierce Him, and all the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, amen. And He says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, who, was and who, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And John would paint us this awesome picture about a millennial reign of prosperity and rulership and a coming age where God would wipe every tear from our eye. There's no more death or sighing or grief or loneliness or despair or sickness or disease. And yet when it comes, man, it's going to be a day of prophecy. Even Paul is saying, I has not seen, ear has not heard, nor entered in the heart of man what God has prepared for those of us who are loving Him. And in a sense, here's what's the cool part of all this. You and I are living in the middle of Genesis 49, verse 10 and 11. Isn't that kind of cool? You're in the middle of biblical prophecy. This, this, Genesis 49, he says there's going to be a ruler who's not going to depart from Judah. He's going to come. Shiloh's going to come. And there's a pause and a period And then there's verse 11. He's going to enter into a day and usher in a day of so much prosperity and peace that the world has never seen a day when He comes to reign. And we're in that period. We're in that space between the two lines and saying, Shiloh has come. He's come to a messed up, broken world who ready to repent and be honest with their sins, who cry out for a new reigning king, submit to his authority, and he's going to usher in a day man, that is going to come and we're going to just be blown away that when heaven really comes back down to this earth, man, there's that old song you say, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see, right? It's going to be a day like no other day. That's exciting. You know what I mean? That's like, ah, I'm, I'm pumped, man. Tribe of Judah. And uh, that would make you want to get your your praise on, right? Your Judah on. I mean, come on, we should be, we've got a, a singing God. The Bible says He sings songs of deliverance over us. He's a singing king. He's a worshiping king. He's a victorious conqueror. Paul says that we are more than conquerors in Christ. And so uh, we've got Shiloh here. He's, he's here. He's come. We're not waiting any longer. It's here. And all we're saying is, come Lord Jesus. Man, all, it's done. Victory's won. The battle's won. Satan's been defeated. He's been cast down to earth. Uh, Peter says that he knows his time is short, and he's looking and prowling around like a lion. But man, there is a lion from the tribe of Judah who is already opening the seals, and he's waiting to come down, and it's going to be a name on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when he steps down on that Mount of Olives on that day in Jerusalem, his rightful capital... He says it'll step down, he'll split the mount, and when he sees all the armies of men standing there waiting to kill what remains of his people, the true Jews, he'll speak a word and there'll be no more. Because that's how awesome he is. Man, that's good, right? That's good. It's good to be on the winning team. And that's why we live a life of praise. Because we are worshiping that king who's worthy. Amen? So we should go home pumped up tonight because God loves messed up people. He sent His Son through a bunch of messed up people. And if we'll just own our mistakes and say, Lord, I submit to the authority of the King. I repent of my sins. I believe in You. You are a ruler. You are Messiah. You are the one I look to. And God, I submit to You. 
And he would say, come on, boy, come on in, and I've got victory for your life. I'm going to bring you, because of my grace, I'm just going to usher you into a realm of, I don't even know why. Why does he do it? I don't have no idea. But he would just give us a day. I mean, can you imagine uh, a millennia or millennia or millennia from now? We're going to be here back on this earth, tending our gardens, and our donkeys are just going to be eating it in town, man. They're just going to be going to town. We're not going to care any longer about food or what we have or we don't have or who has or don't have. We're just going to live like it was in the Garden of Eden that every day is going to be a good, sunshiny day, perfect weather, no mosquitoes or fire ants. And it's just going to be, man, I ain't got to worry about a 401k. I don't have to stress. I'm not going to hit my hand on a hammer or anything like that and, and cry or bleed. It's just going to be every day in paradise. No work any longer. And when we do work, it's just going to be good work, right? And just worshiping and communing with our God like we were made to do. Whew, that sounds good, don't it? I'm ready. Amen. Well, hallelujah. Amen. Any questions? Comments?